from um, a few different places. Um, Psalm 119, 2 Peter 2, and Galatians 3. And I'll go ahead and read that today. It can be found on page 569, 1127, and 1076 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Second Peter. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Galatians chapter 3. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our God of grace, as we look into this passage of Scripture, we come into this place as people from different journeys and different levels of faith, different feelings about you, different feelings about your church. And though some of us may come joyful and thankful, others of us may come doubtful, resentful, or, or just sad. The truth is we're all in the same boat and that we all need your grace. If we are to have some kind of connection to you, it's going to have to be one in which you are merciful and gracious. That's all of us. None of us are clean and tidy and perfected to the degree that we'd like to other people to believe. And so this story is, is earth-shattering and mind-boggling, the story of the Bible that tells us that even though we are more broken than we care to admit, that through Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And that that love is continually offered to us and is shown most of all when your son came and took on the burden of our brokenness and entered into the mess rather than leave us to wallow in it. So teach us through that kind of grace that enters in, that understands we're so broken that you are going to have to enter into our mess. Will we believe that's true and will we be transformed by that grace even in this time as we listen to what this passage talks about? So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard things like this, some version of this, I, or maybe you've said it and felt it. I should be free to do what I want. I should be free from the restrictions and expectations of others outside of me to be able to do what I want as long as I don't harm anyone, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, 
Leave me alone. I should be free. That resonates on some level with all of us. We're talking uh, last week and this week about things that resonate, um, but maybe we don't even know why, and maybe we've never even stopped to think about what they are. Um, We're talking about baseline cultural narratives that drive a lot of our life, um, even though we haven't really looked closely at them, and we assume they're really strong and sturdy and logical, even though if you do stop and give them thought, you might find holes in them. And so in a sociological study of 1950s Chicago, Alan Ehrenholt said this, most of us in America believe, I mean this is over 50 years ago, it's like 75 years ago, most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident they scarcely need to be said. Choice is a good thing in life. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. Sin isn't personal. He says, human beings are creatures of the society they live in, and these are powerful ideas, and they all have the ring of truth. So that's kind of what we're stopping and thinking about. Uh, Tim Keller, a preacher and writer from New York, puts it this way, that there's five baseline late modern cultural narratives, and they function as self-evident truths, usually expressed in simple slogans that appear to need no justification once stated. Keep your religious views at private. I am free to do what I wish as long as I don't hurt anyone. That's the one we're talking about today. What right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them? You have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Just things we don't think about. We give them, we under-evaluate them, and we overestimate their dependability. And um, so we're going to look, so last week we looked at one called the um, personal sovereignty narrative. And today we're going to look at this uh, freedom narrative. I am free. We're going to think about freedom. Because as we think about, so one way to look at it is these are unthoughts. Today we're going to think about them. And through that, we might reveal some of the inconsistencies and the naivete of some of our most prized sentiments. And becoming a Christian is interesting because it's a process. When you become a Christian, most of these sentiments are still intact, and it takes time. In fact, it's a lifetime of aha moments where you start to all of a sudden realize, you know, one day, I don't really, I don't really, um, I don't really go with that cultural narrative anymore. I, I'm not behind it like I used to. It used to just ring true, and now I have questions about it because of the good news of Jesus has crept into my life and began to influence and affect things like yeast working its way into dough. So this one about freedom is interesting because it's really popular. You and I all have some of it in us. We can't help it unless you grew up somewhere totally else other than Western uh, civilization, really. And Romans chapter 6, it's interesting in the Christian community because look at Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. It says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I just point that out as one sample verse that shows you Christians from the beginning have been extraordinarily comfortable, even excited and sentimental about language of being slaves of God, being bound to God. Sentimental about that kind of language for centuries. Um, But I don't think so much today. I don't think it's so easy to do that today in the cultural milieu of, relig- of freedom. I, uh, you'll, you'll even find, you'll find it that people find it possible to say, to say that they associate with being Christian, and yet if, they were to, if you were to poke around at all, you'd begin to see that there's, they also think that in no way should that faith creep into their own freedom to kind of carve out their life and make their way. That, that would have been, in most times of the Christian faith, unthinkable because it's such a glorious thing to say we're slaves of Christ. You know, we're, we're bound to Jesus. No, no, we're free. Someone said to me in a coffee shop when I, was, I had some books out that kind of outed me as, as a, you know, a Christian and as maybe a pastor at the Bible and some other book, and what are you reading? I said, well, these, these, reading these books about Jesus and the Bible, are you, oh, are you religious? And yeah, I guess that's a, some, a descriptor that could fit or something like that. And their next phrase is what I remember is they said, well, you don't let that limit you, do you? And that rings true, right? There's something about that you say, I can see my neighbor saying that. I can see saying that myself. I can, you know, I've had those kind of conversations. What's happening? Trying to mesh two things. They might not even be compatible, but the idea of following Jesus, but also still having completely intact my freedom from any outside limitations and restrictions over choices, over directions for my life. And so all of us are dabbling in this. We fear outside restrictions, and in fact, it's a negative version of freedom because it's, it's not freedom to be able to do something. It's freedom from, and it's become absolutized in our culture, and so we need to hear how the gospel and how the message of Jesus says a couple of things to it. And the first, just two things. The first is, you are actually not as free as you thought. You're not actually as free as you thought. You know, Bob Dylan was right. You got to serve somebody, right? You might remember that song? He was in his religious phase, actually, when he put that song. You got to serve somebody. Somebody. In Second Peter, you know, Second Peter, which, which was just read... Um, let's, let's read verse 19. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Second Peter suggests that it's possible to be certain of your freedom and at the same time to be slaves, enslaved. That's just something to think about. Freedom is complex. Freedom's not as simple as you think. And usually if you're saying, oh, I'm free, there's something that you have prop, maybe even willingly enslaved yourself to. And at some point, that'll feel like bondage. But it probably doesn't yet, you know, if you're saying I'm free. The Israelites in the Bible, you know, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. You know, just mind-boggling. This, this people that for 400 years were, were the slaves, were the brick builders. And the... So the way the story is told is God heard their cries. As God hears them crying out for freedom. 
and he rescues them, and, and he frees them. And it's a dramatic, amazing story. I won't go, go into the details. But then what happens is they're, in, they're free, and he's leading them through the dre- desert, and it's sort of, a, it's sort of like the trust, trusting God narratives, the desert wilderness narratives. And what do they do? But then they're grumbling, and they say, we want our enslavement back. <laughs> because... It's starting to look, the dependability of our, our rations schedule back there actually looks really good now. The dependability of the stability of at least we know that old phrase, the flesh pots of Egypt. They were, at least we had that. Now we have to learn this trust God in the desert thing. Let's choose that bondage. Freedom is complex. The prodigal son story. Let me just give another biblical illustration. The child has everything. It's the younger son. Jesus tells this parable. He has everything. I mean, everything conceivable. It's, it's a wonderful family. They have all they need. And, he, and what does he want to do? The first thing, as soon as he comes of age, he wants to cash out and, and go get what he doesn't have at his fingertips. He, he's longing, despite having everything at his fingertips, he's longing for those things that because he's here, that means he he necessarily can't also go and spend his inheritance on all that faraway land. He has a vision of the grass greener over there, and I'm going to go spend wildly, and he does. And apparently he, um, he's free. He goes to be free, but apparently he doesn't, con- he doesn't want to keep that freedom going because he, he doesn't get a job or he doesn't hold down a job. The parable doesn't say, but he ends up having to have no money left and it talks about he's squandered it on prostitutes. And he holds this job as a, as a farm helper. Maybe he's not even holding it down for very long. And he has this moment of utter hunger, watch, and he's watching the, the pigs eat their food. And he's envious of what they're eating. That's his aha moment. This is freedom? I don't know. It's not some kind of freedom, huh? feels more like enslavement and bondage. And so he remembers his father's land. He remembers even how servants are treated in his father's lavish land of grace. And it's like, ah, freedom's actually back there. And so he starts heading back and prepares his apology speech. Freedom is more complicated than just, oh yeah, I can remove all the restrictions and then I'll be good. Then I'll be free. Um, Tim Keller again. He says this. The late modern concept of freedom is absolute negative freedom, the absence of constraint. The fewer limits or boundaries I have on my desires, choices, and actions, it would seem that the freer I am. However, this, is not, this does not do justice to the complexity of the dimensions of freedom and the realities of incarnate and communal life. And then he gives an example. A 60-year-old man may have a strong desire to eat fatty foods, but if he regularly exercises his freedom to give in to that desire, his life will be curtailed in some way. He must choose, a, choose to lose a lesser freedom to eat the foods he enjoys for, to find a greater freedom, health and long life. And you could come up with a thousand examples. Just an example of how freedom's a little more complex than we imagine. And so verse 19 is right, that people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. 
You've got to serve somebody. You're a slave of something. You can, you can go and run off after that far-off country you've longed to, to, and wanted to explore, but it'll master you. And at some point, it'll leave you high and dry, and you'll realize it's just another kind of bondage. One of the most powerful kind of masters that we cling to is whichever one in particular you are using to say to yourself and to prove to yourself that you matter. I matter. We often use something and get something kind of to get us chained up in order to be able to feel like we matter. So maybe you're chained up and bonded by um, voices of parents. Maybe your bondage is in achievement. Maybe you're shackled by being right or being busy or being sexy or being acknowledged. I would just say this. Where do you find yourself in, in all of these images? Where do you find yourself when you think about Israel getting the freedom they wanted but then le- turning back and looking to Egypt and the dependability? What do you think about when, where do you find yourself when you think about that younger son going far off and getting and then turning around and going, well, this is enslavement. What's your enslavement? What's got you? We all have something. Even if you say, I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm, I'm a slave of Christ, there's a competing enslavement at work. And so the second point is, from the Bible, from the gospel, you need an experience of God's grace to free you. Um, if you're a Christian or a non-Christian and you look at the Christian life as a bunch of people trapped in a submerged submarine staring out a periscope at all the people on the beach having fun, <laughs> You might, view the, you might view yourself as being in the submarine or, hey, I'm on the beach and that's what Christ, Christianity is. Either way, you're wrong. You've got Christianity all wrong. It's very common for you know, faithful churchgoers and Jesus followers to feel like, you know, I'm peering out of a porthole or a periscope and, and oh, I'll never get to have any fun like, like that over there. But this is, you know, this is the right way. Now, that's not strange or bad or... It's actually quite normal, it's, but it's just absent of the true grace of the Christian faith. You're still kind of missing it. As Jesus said in John chapter 8, um, his followers, he said, would, his disciples would know the truth and the truth would set them free. In a sense, follow me, enlist into the kind of restrictions, the Jesus restrictions, if you're going to call them that, and find true liberation. Um, as Tim Keller says in, in, uh, in his book on preaching, when he elucidates some of these things, I love this. He says, freedom is not then simply the absence of restrictions, but rather consists of finding the right liberating restrictions. Because you've got to serve somebody, right? So, you know the State Farm commercial? This is, the, this is what's going to seal the deal for this message for you. Because State Farm put out this perfect ad. I'm serious. It's called, they call it Never, and you can look it up. And it starts with a bachelor dude. On, he's next to a pool with his buddies, and he's making eyes at a, at a gal by the pool. And he says, I'm never getting married. And then the, this rapid-fire sequence of what's he doing next? Buying a ring, right? Then they're on the plane, coming back from the honeymoon. There's a kid crying behind them. We're never having kids. Next scene... You know, she's in the hospital, she's screaming, and he's right next to her, and they're having the first baby. Then they're sitting with the cityscape behind them outside their dining room window, 
We love it here. We're never moving to the suburbs. Next picture. They're on the front lawn with the hose, and a minivan is driving by. And what does he say? I'm never driving one of those. Next scene, right? He's in the minivan. Then, the, you know, they're dealing with diapers and laundry and going up the stairs. He says, we're never having another kid. And she says, I'm pregnant. Next scene, they're sitting on the couch and they're watching TV and he's got everyone in his arms. He's got two little ones and he's got his wife. And what does he say? I'm never letting go. And it works. Why does that work? Because I think because it's true. Because... Um, Because love can't be found and can't be, can't be connected with and your heart can't grow bigger without some kind of restrictions and some kind of narrowing. And that's just a commercial that you and I all know inside ourselves. Even though we like the narrative, we like, I'm free, get your restrictions out of my face. And that, that commercial verbalizes that but then shows the bigger truth. You find love in that narrowing. It's impossible not to. And you'll never get there if you, if you commit strongly and only to your personal freedom of choice all your life. In a sense, being a Christian is, I invite these restrictions into my life because, well, and then you say, well, why? I want to make sure you get this. And the commercial's not transformative because he gets a minivan and a suburban house, Right? He's not excited at the end because I got, I got the minivan turns out to be way cooler than I thought. That's not why. And we know that. We're, we're smart enough to know it's something else in there. It's the love that he encounters that expands his heart. What does it mean in Second Peter when it's suggested that knowing our Lord and Savior, or actually that, that you escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, two things really is that when you encounter Jesus and when you truly encounter him in his grace, you, are, you find that you are no longer bound by irreligious slave masters or religious ones. And you may come today with one or the other. You may come with a religiosity slave master or you may come with irreligious slave masters. The point is, with Jesus, and this is what baptism shouts out at us, with Jesus, you no longer are left seeking to justify yourself by one of those slave masters, you know, being busy, being right, being sexy, being acknowledged, creating peace, achieving, pleasing my parents. You're no longer left justifying yourself because you're already justified. You're already okay. You're already, because of God's grace, you're accepted and you're valid. You matter. Because, and this is what's cool about baptism, because, and you saw it today, uh, because God baptized you in under his name. So there's a way in which, for us, in our world, we look around, we try to make a name for ourselves. And a lot of us live under whatever way we're doing that. And in baptism, it's so freeing because you've got a name and your name comes in under God's name. It's like, uh, 
I don't know if it's like this, but I'll just say it. I have a brother who's a police officer, and if I went through the town where he's a police officer and I just kind of dropped his name, right, I might not, I'm pretty sure actually, knowing the stories, that I'd probably get a kind of, oh, we'll drive slower next time and, uh, you know, we'll see you. Um, you come in under God's name, and he's glad to have you do so. And so with baptism, we always do this, and this is the wisdom of Jesus. We say, uh, Beckett Renee Greenlee, so we say that name, and then we say we baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because you've got this whole new trajectory of mattering. And God's grace is so satisfying and so relieving and so definitive in giving you the acceptance and validation that you're probably pursuing through some other set of chains. All right. So I'm just going to close with, simply with a prayer, and then we're going to move on with the service. Let's pray. Our God of grace, may you help us to understand how freeing it is to live under your grace. May we hang around enough Christians who get your grace that we see examples of people joyfully taking on what maybe seemed like limitations because we realize actually they're just grabbing hold of this new amazing gracious name that they live with under and they want to live in that name even more they want to know that grace even more so they'll gladly do whatever they can to experience that grace and to be to act and live like a child of God so that they might once again more and more taste grace. If we're at all struggling with grace, God, please put into our lives some examples of that and then work through your spirit that we might know it more ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.